Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, have you ever felt like somebody made a promise to you and you believed that they were going to keep that promise? And so you went about your business in life, counting on that to be true. You make your decisions and you go through life. And then at some point, you discover that that promise is not being kept the way you had thought it would be. Have you ever had that in your life where you're you're really counting on somebody or something and then all of a sudden one day it just isn't quite true the same way it used to be. That's a tough thing, isn't it? How do you respond? What do you think? Especially hard if the person who made you the promise is somebody that you you really believe was, you know, reliable. I, I know this person. This person wouldn't just break their promise to me, wouldn't change. What's going on? And, and so you find yourself with this Not only what you're counting on isn't true, but now you find yourself with this dilemma about the person who had made the promise to you. Well, that's what Israel was experiencing after Christ came. When Christ came, obviously he came first of all to the Jewish people. That's where he was, right? In Jerusalem, he was a Jewish man. He he came, he was the Jewish Messiah. He he came to Israel and and all the things we read about in the Gospels happened in Israel with the Jewish people. And many Jewish people came to understand he really was their Messiah. He was the one who was promised. He was the Savior who had come to take away their sins. And they received Christ as Savior, acknowledged him as Lord in their lives. But there were an awfully lot as we saw last week, an awfully lot of Israelites who said no to Christ because they had their heritage, they had all of the things of Israel, the law, all the things that defined in their mind who they were. And when Christ came, all of a sudden, all that identity and things they had was no longer the issue. The only issue is what they did with Christ. And that was hard for a lot of them, so a lot of them said no. They said no to Christ. And as we read last week, it was like a stone that they stumbled over and didn't believe. Well, for the Jewish people who did believe, remember, they they had this huge heritage that goes all the way back to Abraham. And it come down to them, and especially through the law of 1,400 years of living with the law and all that went along with it, not just all that went along with the law, but all the things that had been added around the law and, and how they lived and they were so caught up in that and it was so much their idea. Some of you can really uh, relate to this if you come from a religious background that has an awfully lot of traditions and rituals and you know, you can kinda, it's, sometimes it's hard to, for those things when they go. But the Jewish people had this this mindset. And and so they become Christians. They they have received Christ. And then they begin to learn and understand that, wait a minute, we don't have to, the law is no longer the issue. It's loving God's the issue. And it's loving other people that's the issue. And and the law still has some things to teach us, but it's not about that anymore. It's not about how our appearance and our identity and our traditions and our rituals, it's not about that anymore. 
And then here came the Gentiles. The gospel goes out to the rest of us. I don't know if any of you here are of Jewish heritage today or not, but most of us are not. Most of us are Gentiles. And, and we came into the church and we never had any of that background. And so the Jew, Jewish Christians are struggling with, well, what's up with this? And more and more, the Jewishness of the church is, is getting lost. And the Jewish people feel, well, but what about all the promises? And they, they see Israel. They see the ones who haven't believed, their own nation, and that it seems as though God is setting them aside. And yet God made all these promises to them, right? God had worked in their lives in, in, in the Jewish people's heritage in miraculous ways. He had made promises about kingdom and all of this stuff, and the Jewish believers feel like this is just going away. And so they're really struggling with here is God keeping his promises. Now that's a big pill to swallow, isn't it? And some of you have. Some of you have had to struggle with that. Sometimes you've wondered, is God really being true to his word? Is he keeping his promises to me? Because I look around, it doesn't seem like it. And so these Jewish believers in this first century were wrestling with that issue. And, and what they're going to come to find out is that it, God hadn't changed. But that things had changed because of Israel's own responses. So we've been in the book of Romans, and the first, starting chapter one through verse five, it really lays down the need for the gospel, what the gospel is, how that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven, lived the perfect and sinless life, died on the cross, and as he died on the cross, the Bible says he, the, the Father took all of my sins and all of your sins and all the sins of the whole world and placed it on Christ. He died paying the penalty for all of our sins. We, we sang it today, that on every sin on him was laid, right? And the wrath of God was satisfied. So satisfactory payment for all of our sins, uh, rises again from the dead, and then offers to us, if we will acknowledge our sins and turn away, hey, we can't fix this ourselves, turn away from any of that and just say, here I am, God, I've sinned against you. It's separated me from you. I believe your son is, is your son. He's Lord. He, he died for my sins and rose again. I, I've just thrown myself on your mercy, God. I, I receive Christ as Savior. I accept his payment for my sins. And, and the Bible says when we do that, he forgives every sin and, and comes to live within us. We have eternal life and he begins working on us to change us from the inside out. So the first five chapters of Romans lays that out really clear. And then chapters six, seven, and eight deal with how, how do we, here we are, we're saved, we're forgiven, and yet we still struggle with sin. We still find ourselves not doing what God tells us to do or doing what God tells us not to do. Sinning, and how do we deal with that? And how do we make progress on that? How do we overcome that? And six, seven, eight, lay that out. And it does make it very clear that it's gonna be a struggle. We're gonna have this struggle, but nothing, not even our own choices will ever separate us from the love of God. That's good news, isn't it? Very good news. And then we have the chapter nine. I talked to you about chapters nine through 11, dealing with this issue of what's, what's up with God? It seems like God has set aside Israel. It seems like what's up with the promises, all the promises that God made and the, the special role that Israel had, you know, and the expectations that that would have continued and it hasn't continued. And so nine, 10, 11 deal with that. And I, and I, I brought to your attention last week that there are some things that are taught out in, in our Christian culture, uh, in churches, um, 
Some beliefs that I, I believe I'm convinced on the basis of scripture are wrong. But chapters 9, 10, and 11, especially 9 and 11, are used to support those false beliefs. And that happens because there's a misunderstanding about what's going on in those chapters. And remember last week we talked about context? Remember that? Uh, if, you didn't, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to you know, go watch the video or listen to the audio and catch up with that. But the context of, of, of Romans 9, 10, 11 is that question, what's, what's happening with Israel? What's up with that? Um, and so Paul begins to answer those questions. And in chapter nine, let me just quickly hit those, those uh, beliefs that are oftentimes, um, they try to support with chapter nine, 10, 11. And the first one is this, that, that God chose who he was going to save and who was not going to be saved. That God said, I'm gonna save you and you and you and you and you and the rest of you, sorry, not saving you. Okay, when, when the Bible is quite clear that, that God chose everybody who would receive Christ, okay? Everybody who would respond to the gospel and receive Christ, that is who God has chosen. Uh, the, the other thing was saying that, that human beings are not capable of responding to the gospel. They're saying you can't even believe. You aren't able to respond to the gospel. And yet the Bible is very clear that we, uh, and let me back up. So what they say is that God has to save you first and then you believe. He comes inside of you and changes you, gives you new life, then you can believe. But the Bible says time after time after time we are saved by what? Faith, right, by grace, by, by grace through faith. It's when we believe. And so the, the Bible teaches that when God brings the gospel to us, or any revelation for that matter, when God brings the gospel to us, we are able to respond to it. God's, the very gospel itself enables us to be able to respond. And then we believe and are saved. And finally, that uh, goes along with this belief is they do not believe that Jesus died for the whole world. They believe that he only died for you and you and you and you and you, the ones he chose. But the Bible is quite clear that Jesus' death was a satisfactory payment, not only for our sins, but for the sins of what? The whole world. The whole world, okay? So um, there were verses used in, from chapter nine to try to support those wrong beliefs. And, and this is where context becomes so, so important because Romans chapter nine really deals with God's choices. And they, they would want to say, well, it deals with God choosing who's going to save. But it isn't like that at all. His, the choices that are mentioned in Romans time, uh, chapter 9 are about how to bring Christ to the world. You see, God made a promise to Abraham. He, you know, descendants and, and land. But he said this, that I'm going to bless the whole world through one of your descendants. That was a prophecy of Christ. I'm going to send Christ through one of your descendants. And so when God told Abraham, I'm going to bring Christ into the world through you, he chose Abraham and did what? Set aside every other family in the world. Not for personal salvation, but for how Christ was coming to the world. And then uh, he, he chose um, Abraham's son. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And said to Isaac, you know, it's your descendants, one of your descendants that Christ is gonna come to the world through. It's not a choice about who gets saved and who doesn't, but how is Christ coming to the world? It's through Isaac. And then Isaac's son, he chose Jacob instead of Esau. And so it tells us how God makes choices and God continued to make those choices. Went down through the line of David. He continues to make those choices about how he's bringing Christ into the world and then 
Christ came into the world. He was born, the baby Jesus. And and that whole story, and then we have all the gospels, his death, his resurrection, and then the gospel begins to go out into the world as we read in the book of Acts. Well, the question still comes, and, and this is what Israel's assumption would have been. Well, we will be the one, Israel, to do what? To now bring Christ to the world. But that isn't what God was doing, you see? And this is why they were struggling. And so as we get into uh, Romans chapter 10 today, it's really written in response to, well, what about Israel? What about Israel? Go ahead and go to that slide if you would. What about Israel? What's, What's God doing with that? So let's turn to Romans chapter 10. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, we'd encourage you to take one from under the chairs there and follow along with us. We're going to start on page 1,303 today. Romans chapter 10, page 1,303. And we'll begin right in verse number 1. Paul kind of starts off chapter 10 the same way he started off chapter 9, showing his heart for the people of God, because what was, what was Paul's religion before he became a follower of Christ? Do you know? He was Jewish, he was an Israelite, that's right. Okay, and so these are his people who are struggling with this. This is his nation who has no longer uh, the center of what God is doing. Chapter 10, verse one, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Let's just stop there for just a moment. They were zealous for God. I mean, they followed their rituals, right? They followed their rules. And all of this because they believed in God. Have you ever been like that in your life? Were you really, really zealous, serious about finding God? But then you found out that You weren't doing it the right way. I think there's a lot of people like that. By the way, this is a good lesson for us all the way around. Can you be zealous about something and be wrong about it? Yeah, all right, that's always good for us to remember. Just because we believe something, we're excited about it, we always need to be open and say, but wait a minute, what does God really say? What does the Bible really say? We we have to live there as Christians or we become the Lord of our own lives but Jesus must be Lord and so we must always be open and ready. So, I mean, I think there's some things we don't have to worry very much about settled. Uh, is Jesus the Son of God? Is he? he? So he's Lord. We, you know, we don't have to worry about revisiting those kinds of things. The Bible is his word, we're saved by grace. Though I'm not talking about the kind of thing, but I'm talking about sometimes we, we hear an idea and we get all excited about it and we get zealous about it, but you know what, we just might be wrong. And we always need to be open to looking to the word of God and saying, am, am I right about this or, or do I need to change? So he says, look, I, I have this great desire they would be saved because they're, you know, they're so serious about their religion, but they're wrong. It's not according to knowledge. For they, verse three, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They were trying to get their righteousness, how? By keeping the law. And we saw, first five chapters there, 
it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so God has set up another way for us to become righteous and receive his righteousness. But Israel did not submit to it. So the question is, is, you know, does God really have to set aside Israel? That's the question. Does he really have to set aside Israel? Well, here's the deal. They have not submitted to God. They have not submitted to what God is doing and, and what he intends to do. Verse number four. He elaborates. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Now, this word, the end of the law, uh, that word end can, and go ahead and put that verse up there if you would. The end of the law could mean a couple of things. Uh, sometimes we talk about uh, the end of something being the purpose for it or the fulfillment of it, right? He's, he's the fulfillment. Uh, like in Matthew chapter five, when he said, uh, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law and prophets. I haven't come to destroy, but I've come to fulfill them. And, and he was the fulfillment of them in the prophecies and, and being the fulfillment of the symbols. That was all true and right there. Um, but I don't think that's what point Paul's trying to say here. I think he's actually trying to tell us that the purpose of the law has ended. Because for 1400 years, the law had been the high standard by which you would be judged and by which you would fail. Okay. Remember we saw, why did the law come? The law came that sin might become, be seen to be what? Exceedingly sinful. So a high moral standard to show us that, that we were in trouble. <laughs> we would know it. And, and then uh, it gave them a way to deal with their sins and failures, their sacrifices and offerings, which all pictured something about Christ who was to come. And then the law was given to do that very thing, to portray the, the Christ, the Messiah, who was to come. All right. And so those were what the law was for. Then there were some other purposes there, but those are the big purposes. Well, when Jesus came, lived the law perfectly, now what's the standard, the high moral standard? It's Jesus, isn't it? The Son of God. All right? And he's the one who's actually dealt with our sins. And so now we go to him directly and personally when, when we fail, when we struggle. And we don't need the symbol anymore because we have the reality. We have what the symbols symbolized. And so all of these purposes of the law are now done. Christ is the end of that. See, and that's one of the reasons that the Israelites, the Jewish people, even the Christians were struggling with that. How can that be the end when this is what has defined us for so long? But God here is very clear. Christ is the end of the law. And when we come to Christ and, and receive him as Savior, are we, do we have to try to keep up, measure up to the law for God to be okay with us? No. God is okay with us and we have a relationship with him because of what Jesus did. And so it's the end of the law. Now I do want to show you something interesting here though. You know, the, the Holy Spirit led people like Paul to write what they wrote and so what they wrote is not there by accident or mistake. And so Christ is the end of the law but the verse doesn't end there. To, what's it say? To everyone who believes. So it's the people who come to Christ and receive him that the law is no longer hanging over them. 
But people who haven't believed are still what? Under the condemnation of the law. They are still sinned and on the basis of what the law says. And so it's by receiving Christ as Savior, believing, placing our faith and trust in Him, that we are freed from this law that all it ever did to us said, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And we are freed from that. But if you're here today and you've never received Christ as Savior, you've never done that, you're still guilty under that law. Let me encourage you to, to receive Christ as Savior and get free from that. So very clear here that Israel, you know, why, why is God setting us aside? You know, and so we start to see it's because they had not submitted to God and they didn't understand that Christ is the end of the law. All right, so then they ask the question, we're gonna ask you sort of a series of questions that get answered in this passage. Next question might be, well, maybe there's a chance that Israel can make it by keeping the law. Maybe they will get that. Verse number five, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. In other words, you gotta do them all. You gotta do them perfectly. Did anybody ever keep the law perfectly? Aha, I tricked you. Jesus did. Besides him, did anybody ever keep the law perfectly? No. In fact, over in Romans chapter eight and verse three, it says, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the sinful flesh, God sent his son to do and to accomplish. But the law cannot do it. So, so can Israel uh, you know, make it by keeping the law? The answer is absolutely not. Nobody has ever been able to do that except the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, then the next question, well maybe the gospel is too hard for Israel to, you know, to understand or, or too difficult for them to understand, too hard for them to find because you gotta figure, I mean here's Israel, right? For how many years? 1400 years under the law. All the problem, and the, you know, it, that's just too hard to expect that they could, you know, could get this and understand that. Well, verse six. And, and uh, Paul goes back and quotes from Deuteronomy, part of the law, and he says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above, or, or, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And, and what he's trying to say is, you know, don't think that, oh, wow, to get this right, we have to somehow rather get up to heaven and, and reach up there and aspire, or, or wait, we gotta do something kind of mystical here. And all. He says, no, it's not like that. It's much simpler than that. And he continues. Quoting from Deuteronomy, verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And what he's really telling them that, it, that it's in the very law that they knew and loved was what they needed to know. Because the law pointed to Jesus. The law foreshadowed all the things that Jesus was going to do. And he says, it's right there with you. So is it too hard for them to get? Is it? No, is it too, too difficult for them to understand? No. He says, it's right there. It's right there with you. All right, so, so the next question that, that we're gonna answer is, is, well, maybe Israel hasn't understood. 
Or maybe Israel hasn't heard because no one has told them. And actually, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there. Let's, let's jump in here, verse nine. He said, this is the word of faith we should preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word confess, let's just let's talk about that for a minute. The word confess, we typically think of as meaning, oh, you confess to a crime, you confess to a sin, you confess what? I did it, I did it. Don't you love the... You know, the police TV shows, you know, and, and they get the guy in the little room there and they yell at him and scare him and he finally says, I did it, I did it, I admit it, I did it, right? <laughs> that has nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, but we think, that, we think of that when we think confession, but really what confession means, the word that's uh, uh, translated confession, it means to say the same thing, to say the same thing as. And really when someone confesses to a crime, that's what they're doing, aren't they? We're saying you committed this crime, right? And then you say the same thing back. Yes, I did, I did commit the crime. That's an agreement. And so when it says you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what it's mean. You're saying, I agree. Jesus is Lord. He is who the Bible says that he is. He's not just a good man. He wasn't just a great teacher. He is Lord. He is the one that the Bible portrays him to be. And this is believe in your heart that, that he was raised from the dead. In other words, he can't be dead for you to be believing. He's alive. Now, I think of this idea, confess with the mouth, believe with the heart. What he's trying to tell us here, it's a whole person deal. It's not just an intellectual deal, not just an emotional deal. It is a whole person kind of thing. And to be honest with you, I think that he could have switched the words. He could have said that you need to believe in your heart you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and you need to confess with your mouth that he was risen from the dead. I don't think it matters. We're trying to say it's the whole person, right? Because what's on the inside comes out the outside. Okay? All right? And actually the next verse kind of tells us that. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. You, you believe, you trust, you receive Christ and, and then he gives you his righteousness. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, when it says confession made unto salvation, it doesn't mean you confess so that you can be saved. What it means is you have been saved and then you make confession of that. You, you say that that is the reality on the inside, okay? So you're agreeing, you know, I have believed, I have been made righteous, and now I am saying to you that that is what has happened to me. And once again, we're talking about involving the whole person. It's not just some intellectual thing, it's the whole person. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. No, no future judgment for your sin. You're not, you know, going to be sent to hell. No, none of that. Verse 12, and he says this, and this is important. Remember who, what questions are we answering? You know, what's up with Israel being set aside? Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call about, upon him. So who can be saved? That's right, everybody. And who experiences the greatest blessings of salvation? Everybody who gets saved, okay? It's the, and he's saying there's no distinction anymore. Verse 13, just like a summary for whoever, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew, Gentile, you, me, 
whoever. All right? So, um, was the gospel too hard for Israel to understand? Very simple, isn't it? Jesus is who the Bible said he was. He did what the Bible said he would do. If we'll trust and believe, we can be saved. Well, here's the question that I, that I jumped into earlier. Well, maybe Israel hasn't understood or, or, or hasn't heard because no one has told them. Let's start in verse 14. Well, how then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And preacher, don't think ordained minister. Preacher, think of it's someone who shares the good news. Because that's what the word means and it's, it's basic meaning. Someone who tells the good news. So how can they, you know, believe if they, uh, excuse me, how can they call on him if they haven't believed? How can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if somebody doesn't tell them? So that's the question. Well, maybe they haven't understood. Maybe they haven't heard. Verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, sometimes, uh, the, the, the biblical culture is definitely different than ours. <laughs> I mean, if you want to describe someone, would you say, wow, what beautiful feet that person has? I thought about taking off my shoes and socks up here this morning to, and I said, no way. I mean, I share the gospel, and I share the gospel with individuals, I share it with you, and so therefore, my, I have beautiful feet, but I'm, I'm having a hard time feeling it. And so would you if I took my shoes and socks off. But you get the point. What a beautiful thing it is when you or I or anybody takes the gospel and shares it with somebody else. Tells them that they can be made right with God. That God has already done everything that he needs to do. All they have to do is just believe and receive it. That's it. So how, what a beautiful thing that is. So it's all there. He says it's there. Okay. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. How, how do you obey the gospel? Well, in John chapter 6, it's interesting because Jesus is, you know, talking to them about, you know, how they live their lives and what they believe. And, and so somebody asked a question. They said, well, what do we need to do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on the one that God sent. That you believe. How do you then obey the gospel? What do you need to do to obey the gospel? You need to what? Believe. Okay? And what he's saying here is they have not all believed. Israel has not all believed. They had it preached to them. They had it shared with them. It was right with them. They have not believed. They have not all believed our report for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? They haven't. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then he says, but I say, have they not heard? Hasn't Israel heard? Yes, indeed. And then he quotes from, um, I think Psalm 19. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Yes, the Jewish people have heard. All right, so are you starting to see why they're being set aside? God did make promises to them. 
And part of the promise was to bring Christ into the world and Christ was going to be the savior of the world. He died for everyone's sins and he's the Lord. And that was the, the where the promise went, right through that. And what did they do? They rejected that, didn't they? They rejected God's offer of Christ. Israel rejected God's offer of Christ. And if we look back in chapter nine, the end of it, we don't have to. But remember we finished up last week saying that Christ is the central issue. Christ is the central issue, and the Israelites who did not come to believe rejected the gospel because of Christ, and they were just not going to go there. And so why is Israel being set aside? Because God isn't keeping his promise? Why? Because they rejected God's offer. They rejected God's offer in Christ. That's why they are being set aside. And so let me say this to you. Um, I'm going to just sort of make a quick application here. If, if you find yourself struggling sometimes with feeling like God has not kept his promises to you, let me assure you that the, the problem does not lie with God. God is faithful. God does work. The problem lies with us in, in one of two ways or a combination of ways. One of those ways is we don't really understand right. We, we aren't understanding right. We don't really understand how, how God works or what's going on. We don't understand that we don't know everything. We don't see everything. God is faithful even when we don't see it. That's one area we might struggle with. The second area is that, you know what, maybe we really aren't, you know, living this the way we're supposed to live. And God is allowing us to suffer the consequences of that so we'll learn, all right? God is faithful, even when we are struggling with where is he, what's he doing? Go read the book of Job. And God, you see, God is always at work behind the scenes and faithful. So Israel rejected God's offer of Christ. So they have been set aside because of their own decision. They rejected God's offer to them. So, so let's continue on down. Verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will, this is what he's speaking on God's behalf, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And what he's saying here is I'm gonna bring the Gentiles into the church. I'm going to begin to work through the Gentiles and you Jewish people, that's gonna provoke you. How can you know, God be doing this? And he says, I want to provoke you because I want you to look at the issue. I want you to address the issue. I want you to say, why is God doing this? Because if you'll wrestle with that issue, you'll come to see that Jesus is the one. So God is being faithful to, to work in their lives. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, again, he's speaking words for God. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Who is that? Who is it? The Gentiles, that's right. Okay, he's saying that the Gentiles have found me. They have opened up their hearts to me. Verse 21, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Wow. This is why Israel was set aside. 
They rejected God's offer of Christ. So has God rejected Israel? Yes. God has rejected Israel for now. God has rejected Israel for a time. And and, uh, the Apostle Paul asked this question right in the beginning of chapter 11. He says, I say then, is God cast away his people? Certainly not. And he's going to go on and explain how this works. But the reality is this, that God has rejected Israel for now. So let me lay a little groundwork for where we're going next week in chapter 11. In Daniel, the book of Daniel, God sent Daniel a vision, gave him a vision. Uh, Hang in there, we're not done yet, okay. Um, God gave Daniel a vision for Israel, the nation of Israel, a 490 year prophecy, what was gonna happen. And it starts with a decree that was given by uh, the Persian king for Israel to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It started then. And then it says that 483 years later, the Messiah would show up, okay, and offer himself to Israel as their Messiah at the end of 483 years. That happened when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And I'm convinced based on things I've seen and, and studied that It was to the day, the prophecy was fulfilled to the very day. So 483 years. And it says after that, and it gets into sort of an indeterminate time, no times giving. It says after that, he's going to be killed, but not for himself. (laughs) Jesus was killed, but was he killed for himself? No, he's killed for you and me. Okay, and then it tells, goes on and talks about how uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. And then it starts talking again about the last seven years. See, 490 year prophecy, 483 years have been fulfilled. For for whom? For the church? No, for Israel. There's seven years left. And it starts talking about that that time frame and there describes some things. And, And what we see is that this seven years is yet to come. And it's going to come, as we would read in the book of Revelation, or if your your background is is Catholic, you've probably seen the book, the Apocalypse, same book. It says in there that that seven-year period, what we call the tribulation, that God will once again work through the nation of Israel. Because guess what? You and I will be gone. The rapture of the church, he will take us out. And then he will once again be bringing Christ to the world through Israel, because at that point in time, the Bible tells us that they will see, Israel will see and understand that Jesus was their Messiah and they will proclaim him. So God has rejected Israel, but just for now. And we will see next week how that's gonna play out. But here's what I wanna leave you with today. We kind of zip by it, but back in verse number 14 it says, How can they call on him whom they have not believed? How can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if someone doesn't tell them? So my question to you today is this, who do you know who needs to know Jesus? Who do you know? Well, how can they call on him and get saved if they haven't believed in him? These people that you know, think about. How can they 
know, you know, if they haven't heard. And how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? And if they're in your life, could it be that you're the one who needs to tell them? You're the one who needs to engage with them and love them and care for them, be a true friend to them. Ask God for opportunities to talk about it. Ask God for opportunities to bring them to church and they can hear it here. But would you set your heart on this? Who do I know who needs to know Jesus? And do something about it starting this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word that you speak so truthfully to us. We thank you that you do keep your promises even when sometimes it looks like you're not, that you are working behind the scenes, you do have a plan, and your plan is always best. Help us, Lord, to settle that in our hearts. And then, Lord, I do pray you just stir us, stir us, stir us about who we know that needs to know you. Stir us up to where we put ourselves at risk and put ourselves out there and begin purposely engaging with them with a, a desire to see them come to know you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. Thanks for listening so attentively. And uh, take it to heart. You're dismissed.